Well, tonight I mercifully have gone back to Joshua after we trudged through the mists that were driven by the sea and the clouds without water and the dogs and the sows that returned to the mud last week in Second Peter 2 so that we could get through with that. Tonight I want us to look together at Joshua chapter 5 under the topic of honoring the Lord. And if you'll, uh, while you're finding that, as we'll be looking at the text of it briefly together, uh, I've just finished doing something that I'm very excited about. And uh, I, I guess if me being excited, it's better than nobody being excited. I've uh, just finished projecting uh, every sermon that I'll preach for the next 10 months. And we're going to be, as I've told you before, doing the writings of the Apostle John and I have broadened that to include uh, his epistles. We will finish the epistle of 3 John next August the 27th. I know when I will be out of town for conferences, revivals, and for vacation uh, for the next year. And uh, have allowed for those. And we will be publishing and putting into your hands a listing of the titles in the text of all 67, 78, 80 sermons, whatever it is, 77 I think. Sermons from the writings of the Apostle John. The next 10 months, we'll be doing all of his writings in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul dominates the New Testament in many ways. His writings are very important, but there is an element of John which is not duplicated anywhere else with a sensitivity and awareness, a, a beauty about him and what he has written that uh, we're so blessed to have. So I ask you to pray that as we go through the simple yet very deep waters of the gospel of John between now and New Year's, that uh, God will bless the gospel and his word as we open it together and uh, discuss Jesus. And that's what the gospel of John's all about. Joshua chapter 5, honoring the Lord. Now previously in the book of Joshua, just by way of review, we started out talking about a time for boldness and uh, the things that boldness demands, strength and obedience and trust. Then there were the preparations that God made. And it's interesting to note how God insisted that the people be prepared to do His will before He moved. They prepared to possess the land. Uh, then they prepared themselves to invade the land. And then in chapter 3, we saw what happens when uh, God's tomorrow becomes a reality. When God, God's time is now and the future is now as it is for us, it was for them. And then in chapter 4, we talked about the matter of remembering the Lord and a great lesson to be learned that in our times of victory and blessing, we don't need to remember where the victory and where the blessing came from and how it was accomplished and who did what was done. It is always the Lord. And then in chapter 5 tonight, the matter of honoring the Lord. Uh, it is not enough for us at one point in our Christian lives. And the book of Joshua has been likened to the book of Ephesians in its uh, spiritual journey and spiritual warfare aspects. It's not enough at one time to own the Lord as master, to prepare for His will and to begin to do His will. That's not enough. We've got to at all times, as chapter 4 says, remember the Lord and what He's done, where success comes from, and who does the things that are done. And then we must... Continually, and that's part of what chapter 5 is about, continually maintain that relationship and our willingness and our uh, fitness for His service through the matter of honoring the Lord with every day of our lives. 
Verse 1 constitutes a unit all to itself here in Joshua chapter 5. And I have called this verse the fear of the Lord. I think it is significant to note that all of the things that the people of God can muster up by way of programming and organization and promotion and planning, all of these things are ineffective unless God is at the heart of what's being done. Nothing you can do by way of, uh, and things ought to be organized and promoted. Things ought to be done well. God is never honored when we do anything for him haphazardly or halfway or cheaply and call that stewardship. That's not what God does. God gets ready to do something. God does the best, gives the best, suggests the best, demands the best. But it's all useless unless God's in the middle of it. Now, it was not the fact that Israel had an army of over uh, 650,000 fighting men. That's not the thing that scared the enemies of Israel. It was not the fact that they were determined to possess the land and had demonstrated on the other side of the Jordan their ability in war. That wasn't what scared the enemy. The fear of the Lord is what paved the way for the conquest of the promised land. Notice in verse 1, It came to pass that when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the side of Jordan westward, the promised land side, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, another boundary of the land of promise, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted. Neither was their spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. The fear of the Lord is what comes on the enemy of God and all of his helpers when the power of God begins to be turned loose both in individuals and through the corporate structure of his people. The fear of the Lord. You see, the drying up of the waters of Jordan was a thing which in their day was wholly unheard of. You know, crossing a river at flood stage is no problem for an army nowadays. They have mechanized things. They have equipment. They just float some kind of a portable pontoon bridge and take off. You know, it's no trouble. But that was a little different then. First place, it had taken many years to build a dam to stop the Jordan. It had taken about six months in that country for the ground to dry out after the waters had been rolling over them for hundreds and thousands of years. But you see, in one moment, God did what man could never do. I think of Acts chapter 3 where Peter looked at a man lame from birth who for many years of his adulthood had stayed by the beautiful gate of the temple. And Peter said, I don't have any money, friend, but I have something that you need much worse than that. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, may your need be removed. And it says in the Acts 3, 1 to 9 there, that when all of the people who came and went from the temple right by that beggar and knew exactly what he looked like, when all of the people saw him walking and leaping, they all gave glory to God. And you know what God wants to do, and our unbelief will tie his hands. George W. Truett, 47 years pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, a great conservative Baptist 
said, when God is your partner, make your plans big. What God wants to do, if we will let God do it, is do things that nobody in their right mind would blame anybody but God for. We did not know what was happen, would happen as a staff, and, and I know for a fact by the virtue of a number of people that have approached the pastor and the staff since our crusade who, who were both at the same time thrilled and amazed that God reached down and saved almost 50 people in four days. But God did it. And God wants to do it. And I thank God that the fate of the church doesn't rest on the size of our imagination or our plans or our faith, which we, our lack of faith, which we mistakenly call good sense or common sense or reason or logic or, or whatever you want to call it. I'm glad of that because God wants to do things that nobody could explain. There was a period, and the reasons don't matter in the past is gone. There was a period of some six months where the church took in 16 new members and lettered out, uh, took in 10 and lettered out 16 for a net gain of a minus six. We had 87 additions during the month of September. God did it. God did it. A man who was a deacon in a church where I preached a revival in St. Louis, Missouri in 1967 called me this afternoon from Oklahoma City said, do you remember me? I said, yeah, now, uh, is it Ohio or Missouri? And I couldn't remember where. And he told me it was St. Louis. And I remembered who he was. And he said, well, we had a lay renewal at our church last weekend. And two of your young people, he couldn't remember who they were, and I don't know. said, two of your young people were there on the team. And, uh, oh, they had such wonderful things to say about what God was doing out there. And I asked who the pastor was, and they told me. And I just wanted to call you and rejoice at what God is doing. You know, God wants to do things and put the fear of God in the enemy of God and the respect and the fear of God in the people of God in a way that nobody in their right mind would either think that anyone but God was responsible and that nobody certainly who knew anything about God would try to say that God wasn't involved. The fear of the Lord. And then notice in verses 2 to 9, here is a thing that we don't relate to exactly. We don't relate to exactly this. It's a, it's a different kind of a thing, but there's a great spiritual principle here. Dealt with here is the sign of the old covenant, which was circumcision. Now, the sign of the new covenant, as Paul tells us, is baptism. And Paul very uh, well compares the function of baptism with the function of circumcision. It is a sign of ownership, a sign that set the Jewish people apart from everybody else in the ancient world and identified them as belonging to God. Circumcision was not the part and parcel of their salvation. Not at all. But it was a sign of obedience and a symbol of wholehearted commitment to God. Now in this matter of circumcision, all who were Jewish through the 400 years of captivity in Egypt had been circumcised. But those who had been born during the period of 40 years in the wilderness when the Passover had not been observed, when God had not been honored in every way and, and the people were aimlessly wandering outside of God's will in a land of barrenness, all of those hundreds of thousands of Israelis had not been circumcised. And so as we read beginning in verse 2, at that time, 
the Lord said to Joshua, Make sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised them at the place called the Hill of Foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did it. All the people who came out of Egypt, the males, the men of war, died in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. Remember, they refused to obey God and to go into the land of promise. Now, all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness were not. For the children of Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness until all who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord had sworn that he would not show them the land which the Lord promised to give their fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their place, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised by the way or during the wilderness stay. And it came to pass when they were done with it that they abode in their places in the camp until they were whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, Wherefore the name is called Gilgal unto this day. We had a study in Gilgal several weeks ago, sometime this summer, before I started this series where we talked about the many things that it represents. It is the Old Testament Calvary. So many parallels are very beautiful about Gilgal and Calvary. It is the place of reproach. It's the the place of repudiation where they denied themselves and owned the Lord. It is the place of salvation. This day I have rolled off the reproach of the world from you and you belong to me in a unique way. So Gilgal becomes to them what Calvary is to us. But I want to, rather than developing the many ways we could go in talking about the covenant symbols and its meanings, I want to talk about the sharp knives that he mentions. The sharp knives. Now, notice that this is not the judgment of water that came on the Egyptians. This is not the judgment of the plagues or the fiery serpents or the fire from before the Lord or the earth that opened and swallowed the rebellious against God's servant. This is not that kind of a judgment. God said to Joshua, you make sharp knives that the people may use for circumcision. The sharp knives in their spiritual significance, as we would relate to it, talk about the matter of self-examination. Self-examination. You see, they were God's people. There is no doubt about this. God has just rolled back the rivers of Jordan and taken them into the promised land. They are God's people. But now God says, I want you to examine yourselves. I want you to own me not as your Savior only. They were saved from Egypt. They were saved from death in the wilderness by the giving of manna, the bread from heaven. They were saved from the waters of Jordan and brought into the land of promise. He says, now I want you to own me as your master, as your Lord. I want you to do my will and I want you to do it my way. And so with self-examination, they by circumcision, which identified them in a hostile world as belonging to God, they judged and examined themselves and turned their back on the enemy of God and on the way of the world. The hymn says, Now I bid farewell 
to the way of the world to walk in it nevermore. This is what they did. I recall how Paul writing in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be observing the Lord's Supper Sunday night. And in that place, Paul says, when you come to the Lord's table, let a man examine himself. Let him judge himself, examine himself, and see if there is anything that stands between he and and full fellowship with God. For let him not despise the sacrifice of Jesus by drinking and eating hypocritically or unworthily or with unforgiveness or or a bad spirit or rebellion against God in his heart. First, let a man examine himself. And then, let him partake of the supper so as not to bring judgment on himself. The problem with many Christians is they have perverted the gift of God, which is self-examination, into the practice of examining everybody else. You may know for dead sure and without any question when you or anybody that you know cannot get enough of criticism, negative attitude, picking at people and looking at everybody but the mirror got a deep spiritual problem. They stand before God accountable for one individual themselves. Paul says, let a man examine himself. Paul says in Romans 14, who are you to judge another man's servant? James, the brother of Jesus, said in his letter, how dare you criticize your brother? You set yourself up as a judge of God rather than as a doer of the law. So the sharp knives refer that to us spiritually in the matter of self-examination, we must be constantly, over and again, every day, coming, as Paul says in Romans 6, to the place of death, confessing our sins, reckoning on the bottom line of the ledger that we are dead to our old nature and alive to God, being filled with the Spirit by a way of confession and submission to God every day. And in that way, we honor God. We must remember as the people of God that there's nothing that we can do to please God. God doesn't want our help. He's never asked for our help. He's asked for our lives so that He can use them. And the sharp knives refer to the matter of self-judgment. Then in verses 10 to 12, here is a new provision, a new provision that God has made for them. There's a great truth here. It is by way of reference to manna. The manna ceased when they entered the land of promise. You know, there may be times in our circumstances or in in our emotional lives when we feel ourselves very isolated from God. Everybody knows what it's like to to feel despair and depression and feel alone and not see an answer and and not know where to go or, or where to turn. And there may be times that we feel like that, but this manna is a is a is an example. It's one instance out of countless instances as all the people of God can testify that though we may be separated from Egypt with all of its luxury because of our allegiance to God. And though we may not have entered the land of promise in its fullness, and though we may even be in the wilderness and so be deprived in many ways, there is never a time when the supply line of God is broken. There is never a time. Every day for 40 years, God miraculously 
put an edible, nutritious substance on the ground for them to gather to meet their needs. There is nowhere that the people of God can go that the supply line of God can be broken. God has promised that. Alan Redpath, one of the great preachers on the matter of personal renewal in the world today, a Britisher, in his book on Joshua, says, Notice that the manna is on the ground so that every Israelite every day had two choices. They could either walk out of their tent and trample on the manna, or they could gather it and it would nourish them. Alan Redpath and many others as Theodore Epp and and, uh, Harry Ironside, the great former pastor of Moody Memorial Church, and and A.W. Pink, the great Bible expositor of another day, all of them alike say that the manna is is a type a symbol of the humiliation of Christ. And Redpath says that every man has the same choice. He may either trample on the gift of God in Jesus Christ or he may, on his knees, take it unto himself and have all of his needs met. What a beautiful picture that is. Here is a new provision. Now, you see, there is, there is a matter we need to realize God, whether it is by the manna in the wilderness or whether it is by the ravens who brought bread and meat to Elijah every day as he hid out for fear of Jezebel when his life was in danger, whether it is that kind of a thing or manna or another instance, many of which there are in scriptures, manna was not intended to be a permanent thing. It was a wilderness provision. And notice that on the day they entered into the land of promise, the promised land, the manna ceased. You see, the manna was a temporary thing to sustain them until they came into the fullness of God's promise. And oh, how sweet it is to realize that though God may sustain us under the most difficult of times, the will of God is that we endure the bounty of a land covered with His promises and provided by His love. The children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover... Notice that as soon as they had judged themselves, I think this is significant, by the way, and this is free. As soon as they had judged or examined themselves, they kept the Passover. It was at the keeping of Passover that Jesus instituted the Last Supper. The Last Supper is our Passover. Paul says he himself is our Passover lamb slain to to pay for our sins. And like Paul says, first we examine ourselves and then we partake of the Lord's table. And as soon as they had examined themselves, they reinstituted and honored God by way of the Passover. Notice they honored Him by personal commitment. They honored Him by keeping of His commandments to observe the Passover. They observed it with unleavened cakes and parched corn in the same day. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither did the children of Israel have manna any more. But they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. How sweet to see that God's provision is never exhausted and that it is always the will of God that we pass from the wilderness with its emergency provision, with its sustaining provision, into a land spiritually that overflows with abundance of His presence and His His will and His sustaining. And then notice in verses 13 to 15, Here God takes over. Here God takes over. Say, well, hadn't God been in charge? Oh, yes. Yes, He had. There's no doubt about that. But God 
And it illustrates the fact that nobody ever gets to a place spiritually where they've had enough of the Lord's fellowship. No human, no Christian ever gets enough knowledge about the Lord, gets enough knowing what the Lord wants him to do and how the Lord wants him to live and how God wants to be in his life. Joshua was a man appointed by God. Joshua was a man charged by God and honored by God at the Jordan. And God magnified him as God had promised. And the people followed him as God commanded. And still Joshua needed more of the Lord on his life. More of the Lord on his life. More of the Lord on his life. I recall in reading the biography of Dwight L. Moody that after he had left his rather lucrative job as a salesman, after he had begun his work with the YMCA and started Bible classes all over Chicago and after he had been pushed by the demand for Bible teaching in that great city to start a Sunday school and after the the church, the first church which did not bear his name on one of the streets there in that part of the city was begun bearing a simple name and after the great crowds had swelled and they'd moved to their LaSalle Street location where it is today and the great auditorium had been built and people by the thousands were coming in that two little ladies seemed very troubled week in and week out as they listened to Moody preach. He did not know their need. One day he was given opportunity to approach them and he was trying to find out so he could help them and he said, oh, he said, what's wrong? He said, I notice the concern on you whenever we worship. I watch you. You're, you're attentive, but you're always very burdened and concerned and, and they said, why, Brother Moody, we're praying for you. He said, why me? Why are you praying for me? They said, you need God in your life more. You need to be filled with His Spirit and empowered for your ministry. Moody was offended at first. Didn't understand it. They kept praying. They kept praying. And they kept praying. One day when he had a great need, Dwight L. Moody turned his life in its totality over to God. Then he knew what they were talking about. He was anointed for service. He was filled with the Spirit of God. And instead of two or three people being saved out of those thousands, it began to be scores. And one of the greatest ministries the world has ever seen was born. Never had enough of the touch of God on his life. And he always craved for more. Dwight L. Moody says the world has never seen what could be accomplished through the life of one man wholly surrendered to God. He did not say this publicly. He did not say it out loud so that anyone would compliment him. But found written in his Bible when he had died was this quotation, the world's never seen what could be done with the life of a man wholly surrendered to God. And he pinned under that, God, help me to be that man. I remember one Sunday morning in March of 1953 in Houston, Texas, when he was a little boy, five years old, I was saved. I remember surrendering to preach when I was seven and getting away from it and having to come back and do it again when I was a teenager and begin to live 
as best I knew how for God. And I remember that, that schooling was a part of the program after I knew what God wanted me to do. And I went to college and I went to seminary and I was almost out of seminary. And I, I began to think, now, you know, this is a part of the program, but what have I accomplished? And what have I learned? And why am I here? And I didn't know. And I was frustrated. And, and, and finally, the last year of my schooling was very productive personally, but the touch of God wasn't there the way that it ought to be. I, I knew the church inside out. I, I had a point of reference. I had models of successful men within and without my family and wide acquaintances and help and advice and good opportunities to minister. Then I remember a summer day in 1971 with no bull and no platform talk on, on the carpet in my living room on the east end of Houston when I there experienced for the first time the touch of God on my life and my education has been since that time and there's never enough of it and I live in mortal fear that the hand of God will not be on my life and on my ministry and I want you to pray for me because I need it and there's never enough of it and we never get enough of it and there's never a time when we don't need God to take more of our lives and take more of our lives and take more of our lives. But one thing that it means, folks, is when you really get an idea of who God is, you're going to stop worrying about what everybody else thinks and you're going to start trying to please God. God, forgive me, the church has never in a day in the world's history belonged to anybody but God. Belongs to God. I'm afraid of God. And nobody else. I want God to do a work here that's, that nobody can explain apart from the power of God. I still shudder every time I remember a statement that I heard quite some time ago in another place. When someone said, Pastor, we all want to serve God, but we all have different ideas about what that means. And it doesn't matter what those ideas are. The book tells us. The book tells us. Well, pastor, those standards are too high. Talk to God about it. You've got no argument with me. Pastor, nobody can live up to those things. Talk to God about it. He wrote the book. I didn't write the book. Pastor, I don't like it. Talk to God about it. Your arguments with Him were operating according to His rules. Pastor, you're going too fast. The services are going too long. Well, I guess Jesus couldn't look at his watch on the cross because his wrist was nailed to the tree. Which one of those souls do you want to trade for that ten minutes on Sunday morning? God deliver us from the fear of man. God deliver us from the fear of man. God deliver us from an unholy and ungodly attitude of cooperating with the enemy of God by picking everybody inside apart. God deliver us from that. We need to honor God. We need to honor God. We haven't gotten down to verses 13 and 15. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and he looked and behold there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua said unto him, Are you for us or for our enemies? He said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? What saith my Lord 
unto his servant. And the captain of the host of the Lord said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Isn't it typical of us in our humanity to divide everything in, down into sides? My side and your side, and I'm right and you're wrong. But I want you to notice that even though Israel was facing an enemy that was absolutely opposed to God, ungodly, worshiping false gods, practicing human sacrifice, practicing immorality as a part of their religion, he didn't say, oh, you bet, I'm on your side. Look at what he said. Are you for us or for our enemies? He didn't answer that question. He said nay, and the Hebrew means to divide. He said neither one. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. No, my dear, dear people, and I love you. I care what people think, but I care a lot more what God thinks. And I don't want people to be offended, but I know that the very fact of taking offense is the mark of a carnal and ungodly Christian. For Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they who love thy law. Now, anybody misunderstand what that says? Great peace have they who love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Paul said, Why there are envying, strifes, divisions, and jealousies among you, are ye not yet carnal and as babes, needing milk and not meat? God said to Joshua, I didn't come to take sides, I came to take over. And that's what God wants to do, He wants to take over. God wants to be in charge. God wants to be the boss. And like it or not, God is going to do it the way God has always done it. And that is through order and not chaos. God has made a universe by the authority of His mouth. And He made every element of that universe responsive to authority. Now, there is one authority which is perfect and infallible, and that is God, but that doesn't change the fact that there is authority. God deliver parents who wring their hands over their, their children, and after their children are grown and away from God and unfaithful and, and not active, and they wonder why, they would never in their life tell their children to ignore a policeman because a policeman is not a perfect man. But they will roast the deacons and the preacher and the Sunday school teacher and the music director and the staff man and everything that goes on. And then they expect their kids to be responsive to authority. God deliver them. They have sown to the wind. They will reap from the whirlwind and their children are the ones who will suffer for it. The captain of the Lord's host said, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. And Joshua fell to his knees to the earth. And he did worship. But that wasn't enough. You see, his shoes were the symbol of his self-sufficiency. 
they were his protection from poisonous snakes, from rocks and sharp things on the earth. And the captain of the Lord's host said to him as the burning bush, the voice said to Moses, you've got to get rid of your self-sufficiency and you've got to rely on me. Take your shoes off. The ground whereon you stand is holy. We must remember and had a visit this week from people involved in our state Baptist work who came for the purpose of letting me know to let you know how greatly the people in Baptist work in Oklahoma rejoice with what God is doing here. During that time, the man said that we just must be greatly aware of where it comes from and what's happening and how God's doing it. Oh, we must remember in our time of blessing things are happening here the way they are happening in less than one half of 1% of 35,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. We must be aware where it comes from. We must honor the Lord so that God may put the hand of fear on the enemy. We must examine ourselves so that we will be fit to serve Him and to receive His blessings. We must rejoice in the provision from His hand. And we must recall that even in the time of victory that He wants to be in charge and to take over. Next week we look at Joshua chapter 6 which deals with the matter of the obedience of faith. What comment, question, addition, subtraction would you make in commenting on Joshua chapter 5? Anything? Gordon? I will be glad to run it down for you after the service. But let me go ahead. That's not true. Okay. Let me tell you. One of the problems we run into with the translation, half the heresy in the world has been born out of a translation of the Bible. Uh, We've been deluged with harassment, literally. Some of our young people in the staff from churches of another denomination who are among the great heretics of the world, according to the Scriptures. And their whole system of theology is built on one verse of Scripture that is not that unclear in the English, but in the Greek it leaves no room for what they believe. No room. No no possibility. Gordon, there are three words 
that are related in, in the New Testament for, that we translate judgment. See, they're not the same word at all. There's the word, and not that it matters what it sounds like, but the word krino, which means to judge, means to pass a verdict. There's the word anakrino, which means to judge from or to discern. You know, discernment is like looking at two things and saying this one's a peach and that one's a pear. Discernment. The other word is diacrino, which means to judge along with, and it's the word investigate. You know, they're three different words. They're not the same concept. And it is crino, it is the passing of judgment, the passing of a verdict that is forbidden a Christian about himself or about his brother. Yet we are told to discern the spirits. Now somehow or other, one time in the New Testament that word got translated right, other times it didn't. Uh, we are told in King James, discern the spirits. It's the word uh, anacrino, to judge from, you know, to separate. And we are commanded to discern, we are commanded to investigate. You know. But it's foolish, you know, it is, it's the exact opposite of spiritual pride. Uh, the exact opposite, which is not right, neither extreme is right. To say you'll never know you're saved until you die, that's foolish. You know, the Bible says a hundred times in, in the Gospel of John and, and five hundred times in the New Testament that if you believe in Jesus, if you give him your heart, you're saved. You know, so that's, that's a faulty attitude or a faulty position wherever it came from. But when you take your Bible and you read judge, it may not mean judge. It may be one of the other words to discern or to investigate. Is that responsive? I'll, be, I'll help you run down that verse after church. Fine. What else? Cannot tell you how deeply I and, and our staff feel the need for your prayers and your support and God's wisdom as we meet unparalleled challenge. We are out of Sunday school space right now. Ask Bill White, he can tell you. We're out. The ushers, our blessed chairman and honored chairman of the ushers, my dear friend Melvin Suter, said Sunday what am I going to do with the visitors? What am I going to do with the visitors? We can't have that Sunday school class in the auditorium. I said, well, guess what? <laughs> you know, we're going to have that Sunday school class in the auditorium. And, and he understands we've got no choice. What are we going to do? We had 20 people the first Sunday, new Christians studying about growing in Christ. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to pull a little hair and yell at the wall and, and bite it occasionally and be frustrated, but we're going to Go with the program and do what God wants us to do. I haven't gotten the guts enough to set the date yet, but no later than November 1 we'll be in two, two worship services. It may be before then. Bill and I are dreading the prospect, but God deliver us some, someday soon. The only choice we've got is to go to two Sunday schools. If those of you involved in the Sunday school know how hard it is to staff one Sunday school, what do you think about staffing two? Well, the church just getting too big. The church just getting too big. Only the devil would say that. How many times you see parents put their kids in a vice and screw their head down and say their kids are getting too big. I love them, but they're getting too big. Tell me you love the church if you don't want it to go forward. It's not true. We've got no choice. We've got to do that. We need God's wisdom. We need your prayers and your support.
you can see the sick list and the prayer needs as are listed in the link. What else would you add to these before we ask someone to pray for us in behalf of these? Pat. continue to pray for this ministry. We've asked God to give us a way to start this ministry for six months, and we're delighted that it has been. We want you to outgrow the space. We'll find an alternative. You just flood it, and we'll find a place. We'll find a way to, for you to meet and a place for you to go. What else? I think it's every inch the truth that we're all a part of the family of God as we sing and the family has no uh, seniority system and it doesn't have any uh, initiation right or probation to uh, do something real quick we hit four